Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. For our Hebrew Bibles, we have three main groups of manuscripts to compare. The Masoretic Text Group, the Samaritan Pentateuch Group, and the Septuagint Group. Each of these groups contain many manuscripts with the Masoretic Text Group containing the most. In this episode of How We Got the Bible, we're going to look at the history of how textual scholars have and continue to pour over all of this information and determine the best reading when they encounter differences in the text. This information is a bit technical, but if you bear with me, I believe that the payoff is certainly worth it, especially when it comes to the attitude I believe we should all have towards future translations of the Old Testament. So stick with me. Here now is episode 333, Bible Part 4, Determining the Best Hebrew Reading. Today, we're going to take a careful look at the differences between manuscripts. You'll see how scholars deal with variants and figure out which one is more likely to be the best. Now, to keep in mind, this is all pre-translation. We're still just talking about the text. Like, how do we know what the Old Testament Hebrew Bible is? We compare these manuscripts to each other, and we, and we figure out, verse by verse, which reading is more likely to be original in each case. And that's the same thing that we're going to see with the New Testament, although there will be some significant differences in how things are done over there as far as what the manuscripts are, but the process is really going to be the same. It's super important to figure out what the text is before you translate because, look, you can have the most accurate translation in the world by a, a whole team of scholars with multiple PhDs and native Hebrew speakers and all this, but if they're t- translating from a text that has a, an error in it, they're translating an error accurately. What good is that? So we want to be sure to get to the text first to get the best understanding of the text we can. And that is something that, interestingly enough, is improving over time. I know that sounds weird, right? You would think, oh, well, the oldest texts they had better access to in ancient times than we do today. No, that's not the case. I've showed you over and over again that so many of these manuscripts only came to light in the 20th century. So that means somebody in the 19th century or earlier centuries didn't have access like we have today. Plus, in the digital age, my goodness, we have so many of these manuscripts that have been photographed and that are available for specialists and for really anybody who has access to the internet today. So we want to get into the whole question of how do we figure out what manuscripts are best for a particular reading. It's a complicated process, but earlier is not always better. You can't just say, oh, this is an earlier manuscript, therefore it's more accurate. Well, what if that scribe was sloppy? and a later scribe copied more carefully from a manuscript. So it's, it's not necessarily just a straightforward process, but we have these three groups of manuscripts, right? We have the Masoretic Text Group, which has so many in it. Then you have the Samaritan Pentateuch Group, which is a smaller group, and then we have the Septuagint Group, which is pretty small as well. But each of these three groups of manuscripts is important for figuring out what to do when they disagree with each other. Manuscripts are multitudinous, okay? We may only have three groups of manuscripts, 
But when we think about the manuscripts themselves, we have the Masoretic text, we've already looked at the Aleppo, the Leningrad, Cairo, London, U Michigan, Damascus, University of Bologna, and so on. And then we have little fragments like in Getty, Nash Papyrus, Ketef Hanam scroll, and then we also have hundreds of more in the Cairo Geniza. Then we have 227 plus from Qumran and the surrounding Judean desert, also frequently referred to as the Dead Sea Scrolls. Then we have another 150 manuscripts of the Samaritan Pentateuch, and then you have the Septuagint and all its revisions from Aquila, Symmachus, Theodotion, Origins, Hexapla. And then last of all, you've got the ancient translations, the Aramaic Targums. There's a whole bunch of those. I only showed you a couple, but there's a whole bunch of them. There's the Syriac Peshitta, there's the Latin Vulgate, and then there are other ancient manuscripts. So we are not talking about a small thing. We're not talking about the sort of thing that like one really gifted intellectual with a good memory and a good handle of these different languages could just figure out for us in an afternoon. No, this, this is something that would take teams of specialists years. And look, they've been working on the Old Testament for centuries. <laughs> and they're still working on it. And the exciting thing is that over time, we're getting closer and closer to the oldest form of the Old Testament that we have access to as we compare these different manuscripts to each other and digitize them and find out where they agree and disagree. So sometimes the Samaritan Pentateuch agrees with the Septuagint against the Masoretic text. Sometimes the Dead Sea Scrolls agree with the Septuagint and the Samaritan Pentateuch. Sometimes it's just two out of three, and sometimes the Masoretic text agrees with one of these but not the other. There's just a sheer bewildering number of errors that can creep into manuscripts over time, and all of that needs to be accounted for as we're trying to figure out what is the text of the Old Testament. Here are some examples of scribal errors that happen in anything. They happen with the Old Testament, happen with the New Testament, happen with other ancient literature as well. So you can confuse similar letters. In Hebrew, some of the letters, actually a lot of the letters kind of look like each other, and you just write the wrong letter. Another thing is you can put the wrong word division into place, put the space in a different place. For example, you can put the wrong vowel in, misread a vowel. You uh, can use abbreviations or misinterpret abbreviations. Another one is called homoioteloton, which is where the end of the word is the same as another word. And so you jump to the next instance of that word and you skip over something. And then the same thing can happen at the beginning of the word, that's homoioarchton. And then haplography is where you just skip over a whole section maybe from one word in a sentence to the next sentence that has the same word, you just skip over the part in the middle. Ditography is the opposite of that, where you uh, repeat the same again. Transposition is mixing up letters. Uh, you can have dictation errors. You can copy from memory instead of from the, sc the scroll in front of you. Emendations is where you correct a scroll. You're like, oh, this scribe made a mistake here. Let me fix that. Uh, then there are intentional omissions where you leave stuff out that you thought was added in. And then there's euphemisms where you change something to make it more appropriate for reading out loud or reading in public. And that happens, uh, all of these happen in different manuscripts all the time. Uh, it's just the nature of being a human being and not a machine that you look from one copy to the one you're writing, it's easy to make a mistake. And that's you know, the Masoretes were super awesome at not making these mistakes. That's what was so great about them. But a lot of the textual tradition happened before the Masoretes got on the scene in the year 500 and really developed this art and, well, really more of a science. 
Uh, so how do we deal with all of these scribal errors, all these thousands of manuscripts? Answer, textual criticism. Now textual criticism has an unfortunate name. It's the field of study in which scholars compare manuscripts to each other to figure out what the original reading was. It has nothing to do with criticizing the Bible. Think more like analyzing. They're analyzing these different manuscripts to figure out what is the best reading. So the goal of textual criticism is to reconstruct the final authoritative version. Uh, here is a nice quote from Bratzman and Tully who write, Our goal, therefore, is the final form of the text. This is the published copy that the author intended to be promulgated. Whatever processes occurred prior to this in the development phase are the domain of literary or compositional studies. Textual criticism is concerned with working back through the transmission history of the text and establishing this final authoritative version. The text is called final because it is the authoritative version at the end of any process of writing and development, but it is at the beginning of the transmission or copying phase. This is what many intend when they say that they are searching for the original text, but final is more precise and allows for the variety of ways that biblical books developed. Uh, so take, for example, the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms has 150 psalms in it. So what we're talking about the final text is once the book of Psalms was finally completed and then is being copied after uh, generation after generation. That's the form that we're looking for. We're not looking for a form that is like when the book was halfway done, right? Because Psalms were collected over a long period of time. We're looking for the final form and then that's what was then being copied over and over. And that's what textual criticism seeks to reconstruct. They take all of the evidence, all of these manuscripts all over the world, hundreds of them in all these different museums, and they, they compare them very carefully together, verse by verse, and they're like, we think this is the original reading for this verse. And they go to the next verse, and the next verse, and the next verse. So it's a huge task. There are four steps to textual criticism. The first is to gather all available manuscript evidence. The second is to back-translate ancient translations into Hebrew. So you're comparing apples to apples. So if you have a Septuagint reading, which is Greek, you want to back-translate that into Hebrew. Same thing with the Syriac or the Latin or the Aramaic. You want to translate it all into Hebrew. So you don't, you're not just reading in Hebrew, you're also actually translating into Hebrew in order to do this work. Then, number three is to develop a hypothesis to explain how one reading gave rise to any others. And then fourth, choose the reading, or emendation is just a fancy word for correction, that is most likely to be the original. Thankfully, textual critics have been at this for centuries. In fact, you could argue that the Masoretes were themselves textual critics, that they themselves were looking at all the manuscripts they had available. Think about the Aleppo Codex written in the 900s, like 930. What, 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 what is uh, the, the community in Tiberias doing? They've got all these, to them, ancient manuscripts. They're comparing them and they're like, all right, which one of these is the most accurate? Which one of these do we think was the original reading for this verse? And they went verse by verse and they they corrected the text to get the most accurate text that they could at that time. And so this is not a, a strange, foreign, sort of like alien process. This is a very natural process that anybody who cares about authenticity and who cares about accuracy is going to be very interested in doing. So textual criticism, I want you to think of as being a good thing. That is a servant 
of the communities of faith to help us to get more and more accurate understanding of what the original text was that then the translators are going to use to make it into English or whatever language and put the information in accessible format for the rest of the rest of us. So this process has been going on for a long time and the first version of the critical text of the Hebrew Bible was known as Biblia Hebraica. Uh, versions 1 and 2 were done by a man named Rudolf Kittel. So that's a very important name in the history of comparing these manuscripts. He used the Mikraot Gedalot of Jacob ben Hayim ibn Adonijah, and that's the same uh, printed text that the King James was based on. He added a critical apparatus, which is basically a fancy word for footnotes, uh, with textual variants from the Samaritan Pentateuch, the Septuagint, so these are all hopefully starting to sound a little familiar to you, the Syriac Peshitta, and the Latin Vulgate. And he did that work in 1906, right? So it's now 2020. We are over a century past when Rudolf Kittel did this work, and that work is still going full steam ahead. As new manuscripts come to light, I mean, 1906, my goodness, we didn't even know about the Dead Sea Scrolls. Half of those Masoretic texts that I showed you from lectures ago weren't even discovered in the year 1906, right? And hopefully we'll continue to find more manuscripts as time goes on and more Genizot, these uh, places that Jews would store their manuscripts away in a synagogue. That would be great. So we can get a better and better understanding. And, and this is a picture of the early editions of Biblia Hebraica. You can see this is the book of Genesis. It says Bereshit there on the top right corner. And uh, we can read right from the beginning here. It says, Bereshit bara Elohim et hashamayim va'et ha'aretz. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And you can see at the very bottom of the page, he's got this apparatus, uh, or as I mentioned before, footnotes that are showing different readings from different texts. And the, the Gothic font G there stands for the Septuagint or the Greek text. Uh, the fancy M, or the Gothic M, is the Masoretic text. There's like a squiggly M that represents the Samaritan Pentateuch. I don't know if you can spot that, but uh, that's where he's giving us all this different information. And then we got the Biblia Hebraica version 3, which uh, Paul Kala took over in 1921 on behalf of the Bible Society of Württemberg. Uh, he changed out the Mikraot Gedalot for the Leningrad Codex. So this is when Hebrew scholarship said, all right, let's stop basing it on a 16th century rabbinic Bible, printed Bible, and let's go to a handwritten manuscript from the year 1008. And so that all happened in the year 1921, where we took a huge leap, uh, I don't know if I want to say forward, it was more backward, uh, to an earlier form of the text that can give us much more accurate understanding of the Old Testament. And uh, so he included the Mazora Parva and the Mazora Magna in his edition. So that wasn't there in the previous versions by Kittle, these little uh, notations above and on the side and below the text that tell you important things about how many times different words happen and they're sort of like an error checking device. And so now they are included in this version 3 which was finished in 1937. This brings us now to the Biblia Hebraica Stukartensia, which is by far the most influential version of this series. It was begun in the 1960s and completed in 1977. 
The, it's the fourth edition, but we typically call it the BHS. Stuttgart is a city in Germany, so Biblia Hebraica Stuttgartensia just translates to the Stuttgart Hebrew Bible. The apparatus at the bottom was completely revised, and it was published by the Deutsche Bibelgesellschaft, and that's uh, just the German Bible Society in Stuttgart. And it has dominated Bible translation for 40 years. Uh, and they came out with a reader's edition in the year 2014. I've got my own copy of the BHS right here. You can see since it's a Hebrew book, it opens uh, for us English readers the wrong way. It opens from the back, uh, but Hebrews read right to left, so that makes perfect sense. And then on the other side, the English side, they have written uh, Biblia Hebraica Stugartensia. Absolutely wonderful work. And uh, this is the book, ladies and gentlemen, this is the book that most of your English translations are based on. Anything done between, I don't know, the 1970s up until even today, uh, most translations are going to be based on the BHS. Also, if you have an interlinear Hebrew Bible, which I have here, that is also going to be based on the BHS. And this is a, a very nice Hebrew with the English right underneath it to compare words to see what they are. And uh, that is also going to be based on the BHS, as are uh, most of your apps that you're, that you're going to be able to find and get access to. They're going to be based on the BHS as, as well. So what is the BHS? The BHS is a critical version of the Hebrew Bible. So what they do is they have the Leningrad text. When you're looking at the BHS, what you're seeing is the Leningrad text typed out. But then beneath it, you have all these different versions and variants looking at the Samaritan Pentateuch, the Septuagint, these other different ancient translations. They're telling you any differences that there are at the bottom of the page. And so what a translator does is a translator looks at that and a translator says, ah, I see there is a, an interesting variant here and these other manuscripts are going with that. So let's, uh, let's go with that in our translation. And uh, pretty much any time most of your reputable translations, English translations do that, they're going to give you a footnote in your Bible. And they're going to say something like, early manuscripts say this, or Dead Sea Scrolls say that, or the Septuagint reads this. And now, hopefully, you'll have some sense of what those footnotes mean in our English Bibles that we're using today. Brossman and Tully again, in the critical apparatus, the editors sometimes suggest highly improbable emendations. These are criticisms of the BHS. Give evidence for inconsequential matters, ignore evidence for serious textual issues, mix text critical and literary issues, and count witnesses rather than weighing them. So these are some of the problems that scholars have identified with this old 1977 reconstructed Hebrew text is that the apparatus is not as good as it could be and it does have some problems with it, which is why they have started on a fifth version. The Biblia Hebraica Quinta. It was begun in the year 2004. It's uh, about 75% finished now in the year 2020. This is the fifth edition, uh, but people just call it the BHQ. It's a corrected Leningrad Codex to pictures taken in the 1990s in the main text and it includes commentary explaining the Mazora and discussing textual variants. It is going to be an anticipated 20 volumes, this Hebrew Bible, BHQ. The team includes Jewish, Catholic, and Protestant scholars from 13 countries. Wow, it's a lot of different countries. And it has a revised apparatus, and yay, they're using English abbreviations now instead of Latin ones. That's just so great.
Although anyone can purchase volumes of the BHQ, here's an example of them, uh, they're very expensive. So like say you wanted to just get the book of Genesis in Hebrew with uh, all of these different manuscripts, informations at the bottom of the page there, you're going to pay $77 for that, 80 bucks for the book of Judges. I mean, this, this could end up being a lot of money uh, to do this. And this, this is in fact what translators are working from these days, the BHQ. If there is a volume out on the book of the Bible they're working on, that's what they're going to go to. They're not going to go to the old BHS anymore. Uh, but like I said, this, is this series is still not finished. Once the series finishes, which could be in the next five years, maybe less, hopefully less, they will finally come out with a, hopefully a single volume version of the BHQ, and then the BHS will be totally obsoleted and people won't use it anymore. But there's still another major problem that I need to discuss with you. There's a big problem with the Biblia Hebraica series in that this series is a diplomatic edition. Uh, and what I mean by a diplomatic edition is that pretty much from the beginning, they don't figure out what the best reading is in each case. They give you the information at the bottom of the page, but the text itself is just Leningrad. So many different English translations are going to have different takes on what they think the best reading is in each case. Once again, Brosman and Tully, they write, with the exception of the Jerusalem crown out of necessity, all of the recent editions of the Hebrew Old Testament are diplomatic editions based on one manuscript. This is actually unusual in textual criticism, but it has developed in the case of the Hebrew Bible in order to maintain as much as possible consistency between text and Mazorah. That's all the markings around the text in the Masoretic. The potential problem with diplomatic editions is that they leave all of the decisions to the reader, in this case the translator, who must look in the apparatus to see if there is a better reading. And here's the other thing about translators. Translators are people that have studied whatever language they're translating and then they know their native language that usually they translate into. Not always, but usually. So for me, for example, if I wanted to translate uh, from Greek into English or from Hebrew into English, that's, you know, it takes a lot of work, but it's not that hard. You know, I mean, it takes years of study and everything, but it's just, it's just one thing. However, if you want to be a textual critic, if you want to be a textual scholar who's comparing these manuscripts, it's not just knowing one other language. You've got to know Hebrew, you've got to know Aramaic, you've got to know Syriac, you have to know Latin, and you have to know Greek. Is that reasonable to expect translators to do all that work for the textual critic? I mean, it's huge huge uh, amount of knowledge that you would have to gain and then you have to figure out for each and every ind independent verse based on that little apparatus on the bottom of the page which one is correct. I mean it's just unreasonable in my estimation to put all that work on the translators, right? So that's why I'm really excited about this new project that is called the HBCE, the Hebrew Bible Critical Edition. The HBCE is an eclectic edition that combines the best or earliest readings from various sources into a critical text with the data and analysis provided in the accompanying apparatus and text critical commentary. The HBCE editions aim to restore to the extent possible the manuscript that was the latest common ancestor of all the extant witnesses. The earliest inferable text is called the archetype. The archetype is not identical to the original text, however one defines this elusive term, but it is the earliest recoverable text of a particular book. 
that was Michael V. Fox in his volume on the book of Proverbs. This HBCE, which, as I mentioned, is a new project. It has only one book of the Bible done so far, the book of Proverbs. I'm hoping is going to be something that has enough momentum and steam that it will eventually get through the entire Old Testament. And let me tell you something. If this gets done, let me tell you, there's going to be a lot of new translations in the works, not just in English, but in all different kinds of languages for the Old Testament, because this is what we've needed. You know, I'm, I'm excited to see how this project develops. So this is really good news. We're going to have a reconstructed Hebrew text, and as we'll see, this is the standard for the New Testament as well. But the Old Testament scholars uh, really need a resource like this. Originally, this was called the Oxford Hebrew Bible, but it's been renamed by the to the Hebrew Bible, a critical edition, HBCE, and it's sponsored by SBL, the Society of Biblical Literature now. Uh, they've got volumes underway for Genesis, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, 1st and 2nd Kings, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and uh, they have uh, some samples ready. So I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to this uh, project getting completed and being able to compare all of these different things together, not necessarily for me, but for translators that are going to be doing this work, that they would have the best tools possible to really figure out what to do. Uh, now, I realize this was a, a lot of detailed information. We've been on you know, a tour here of the sources for the Hebrew Bible, and uh, there's a lot of strange language, a lot of strange names of things. My goal here is not to overwhelm you, but to inform you so that you understand what's going on. And if I could just summarize everything down very simply is that I think many of us consider the Old Testament since it is so old that centuries ago they have established the text, everybody knows what it is, there's no controversy. And what I'm telling you is the text is in great shape because of the the Masoretes and their excellent work, but there are little corners of it here and there that there are differences and what I'm saying is that, I don't know what percentage, small percentage of the overall text is something that we're getting better and better and better sense of what was the original in those cases because of the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, which again, did not become available in mass until the 1990s. And also a lot of these other discoveries that, you know, like some of these scrolls didn't come, become available until 2013 or 2016. Uh, so what I'm saying to you is that uh, we're getting closer and closer to older and older forms of the Hebrew Bible. And this is one of the things that drives translation. This is like why we keep having new translations. All right, there's another new translation. And then even old translations will do an update. Uh, for example, you have uh, the first New American Standard Bible came out in the 70s. They updated it in 1995. And I, I heard somewhere that they're working on a new update for the New American Standard Bible. Incidentally, uh, if any of you ever do make your own translation, don't ever call your translation new anything because it boxes you in because when you do an update to a new version, what is it, the new, new America's? Anyhow. Uh, so that's, that's a little bit about what's going on behind the scenes here of Bible translation sources, uh, the Hebrew manuscripts. And even though all of this might seem a little startling, wouldn't you rather know the truth than just think, oh, well, I'm sure it's all figured out. I want to know the truth. I want to get at the truth. And, you know, the situation is not nearly as alarming as it could be since Hebrew scribes have actually really tried and done a really good job. To my knowledge, there's no biblical doctrine that's like hanging in the balance. You're not going to lose your salvation over one of these manuscript variants. 
uh, but they are important and those of us who treat the text with such respect and such care and base our lives on it, don't you want to know what the most accurate is? I sure do. And so I'm excited to see how this field develops over the next five, ten years and, and the different English translations that are going to come out of that. Now next time what I want to do is take a break from all of this original sources and look at some translations. And so I've got a number of different Jewish translations with you. It'll probably be a little bit of a shorter episode just to give you a sense of what's out there in the English language. And uh, so we'll get into that next time. Well, that concludes this episode. I've got uh, one, two, three, four, five links in the, um, in the show notes for this episode to books that I mentioned during this episode. There's a lot more to be said about the practice of textual criticism, how exactly scholars go about it. We may return to this subject in more detail once we get to the New Testament and look at the subject of textual criticism with respect to the Greek manuscripts as well. But for now, I just wanted to give a survey about it. But what I think is so cool about the state of things today is that is that you can get representatives of these three main textual groups. Uh, of course, everyone already has a premium representative of the Masoretic text, basically any English translation. Especially if you use a Jewish translation, they tend to be a little more, um, a little less influenced by the Septuagint and the Samaritan Pentateuch, and sticking more closely to their traditional text. And then you can easily get an English copy of the Septuagint, and you can get an English copy of the Samaritan Pentateuch now. I've got this wonderful volume with dual columns, and it shows you all the differences between Samaritan Pentateuch and the Masoretic Torah in bold print in parallel columns. So that's really great. And uh, we're really at an age now where the informed student of the Bible can start doing some textual criticism. Uh, and then the fourth uh, necessary resource for this would be uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls Bible, where you just get the biblical parts of the Dead Sea Scrolls translated into English. So, uh, yeah, if you have those four sources, a regular Bible, an English Septuagint, an English Samaritan Pentateuch, and an English Dead Sea Scrolls Bible, guess what? You're in on the game, and if you do encounter textual differences, you'll be able to know what they are. Now, as I said before, this is not going to shake your salvation or get rid of a book of the Bible. You're not going to find out that Moses was really a, a down-and-out loser, and, and Nadab and Abihu were really like the heroes of the story or something like that. That's not really what I'm talking about. I'm talking about differences in spelling, minor differences in a word here and a word there. Like in Genesis 2-2 that I mentioned, did God finish his work on the seventh day or on the sixth day? Look, what, whichever way it goes, he rested on the seventh day, right? So it, it's not going to affect anybody's take on that subject, right? But it is worth considering, right? It's worth getting into, and especially if you're an Old Testament person, if you're more drawn to the Old Testament than the New Testament, you might as well get these resources so that so that you can figure this stuff out. I mean, as far as I personally feel, I'm getting tired of these Old Testament scholars just dragging this out year after year after year. The BHQ should have been done by now. The HBCE should be well underway. We're waiting another however many years for the BHQ to finish up. The BHQ should be done by now. And then we have to wait for them to come out with a single volume. And then it's still just a matter of deciphering an apparatus. I mean, this is just, 
It's just too much waiting. And then the HBCE is, is not even really underway. So, you know, a lot of this work remains to be done. And a lot of it stems from the fact that these Dead Sea Scrolls have really upturned the scholarly understanding of the value of the Septuagint. A lot of scholars looked at the Septuagint as something that Christians were just pushing because we wanted to line up the Old Testament text with the New Testament quotations. Most of the New Testament quotations are from the Septuagint. Now they're singing a new song because they're like, oh, wow, there were Hebrew predecessors of the Septuagint at the Dead Sea Scrolls, showing that this is indeed an ancient textual tradition, not just a wacky translation. Okay, same thing with the Samaritan Pentateuch. So uh, we, are, we are at an age where the information is there, but we're sort of like in a holding pattern on scholarship to process the information and then put it out in a format that then translators will be able to use easily to get the Bible updated in all these different languages around the world. So, I mean, it's in one sense, it's an exciting time. In another sense, it's like appalling that we're not bet in a better situation <laughs> in the 21st century. I mean, the Old Testament has been around forever, and uh, textual criticism, the field has been in place for so long. I mean, why are we still? Why are we still just reading Leningrad as if that is the exact Bible that Jesus read? Uh, I don't know. I mean, it's great compared to so many other manuscript traditions. We should be so thankful. I, I realize that, but at the same time, it's like we have older sources. Let's let's get a move on here. So that's my two cents on this whole subject. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to support Restitutio, you can do that online at restitutio.org. That's it for today. We'll see you next time. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.